Welcome to Irish Passport. Uh, let's do it. Welcome to the Irish Passport. I'm Tim McInerney. I'm Naomi O'Leary. We're friends. Can you Naomi? Tim. This is your passport to Irish culture, history and politics. Uh-huh. I'm recording. One, One two, two, three. three. Okay. everyone. Hi and welcome back to the Irish Passport Podcast. Now guys, earlier on this week we were already waist deep in the production of another episode, which will be coming your way very soon by the way, Uh, but events in international politics right now are so potentially explosive that we just had to record this episode first. Exactly, so you guessed it, it's a time for the return of the (laughs) clown car music because this is another Brexit update. It's back, Naomi, now with extra chaos and more borders than ever before. It's Brexit. (laughs) (laughs) Listeners, if you've been tuning in for a while, you'll already be familiar with our occasional uh, Brexit updates, uh, where we break down exactly what's going on and what the potential consequences especially might be uh, for Ireland. Uh, Because even at the best of times, you know, these interminable like U-turns and twists uh, in these uh, negotiations have been really hard to keep track of. And especially right now, as 2020 is throwing everything she has at us, um, it's been more difficult than ever to stay up to date with what the hell is going on in the UK. Uh, So, you know, Naomi, like I do get this general sense of people that they've just lost patience with all this and they just don't really care anymore. Yeah. Like, here, you know, here we are. Like, it's it's four years after the referendum. Like, and it feels like really none of the major issues are even close to being resolved. Um, but what has been happening over the few weeks um, and what we can expect to see in the months to come actually really is important. And Naomi, as ever, you're here to tell us why. Right. So this is all totally t- true, Tim. Like, there's mm. profound Brexit fatigue and just total disengagement, particularly outside Britain. I don't think people even realise how much so. You know, like in Brussels, even though it's like something that they're working on, like no one is talking about it. Everyone is focused on other things. People are just past exasperated with it. And also, like, we've just gone round and round on the issues like so many times. But listeners, I promise... I will try and lay out everything here in the least boring way that I can and also in the the most simple way that I can. Lay out the facts and like you say, Tim, what we're about to break down, it is important and not just because of its potentially huge consequences for Ireland, but also for our dear British neighbours and indeed people all around Europe. So later on in this episode, we'll hear from the United States Congressman Brendan Boyle. You may have heard him tearing up the airwaves recently in defence of the Good Friday Agreement. Um, So he is the son of a Donegal man and he's part of a sudden backlash from Washington against the latest move of the British government. Okay, so to be clear, Naomi, it doesn't always feel like it, especially since we're still talking about it, but the UK has already left the EU. That's done. Correct. They left in January this year, but uh, there was always going to be this transition period, which is what we're in now, and that was a time during which everything would stay the same as it was before, and they would, apart from the UK not being a member of the EU, um, 
during that time then they would use it to negotiate future trade relations. So basically their the relationship between the EU and the UK after January 1st, 2021. So just in a few a few months time. Okay, right. And I think in our last um, Brexit update, you kind of went through why that's a short period of time, like uh, to say the least, because there's so much, um, so many details to get through. Yeah. Uh, but now, um, and I can't believe I'm saying this in 2020, after four years of talking about it ad nauseum on this podcast, what's going on now has just run into something of a brick wall because of, wait for it, the Irish border, once again. 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 Yeah. Like, this was actually something we explained in our first ever episode of the podcast, way back in early 2017. Like, it's incredible. So back then, the British government, it was the same stuff. There was a sort of denialism. It took a very long time for the British government, and especially, I think, voters, to wake up to the fact that this was a huge conundrum. You know, they were going to have to make a a trade-off that they didn't like one way or another to do with this border. And it has just sort of haunted and thwarted them at every step of these negotiations. And it's come up again at the very last hurdle. Okay, right. Now, over the last few years, there has been so much misinformation and deliberate, like, obfuscation, I suppose, um, of the issues at play here. You know, sometimes from politicians, sometimes from the media, you know, all sorts of people have kind of vested interests in in um, in colouring the information here. So I think it's it's worth recapping just how we got here. So to remember, like here is the basic problem. This border runs between UK-controlled Northern Ireland, which has been taken out of the EU, and the Republic of Ireland, which is still very much a member of the EU. Therefore, it is now the only land border between the UK and the world's biggest trading bloc. After the end of the Brexit transition period in a few months' time, something is going to have to be done to ensure that goods, which maybe do not comply with regulations on either side of that border cannot move illegally across the border. Right. And therefore, there's this fundamental conundrum. It's out of the question for anyone, whether Ireland or the EU or uh, the UK, to put up any kind of checks or physical infrastructure on the land border, because its status as an open and invisible border is just really fundamental to peace and stability in the north. Um, And it's, it's it's a kind of corner assumption of the Good Friday Agreement that has largely successfully brought peace to the territory since 1998. Sure. So faced with this then, the UK quite early on was faced with two options. So one, it could remain closely in line with EU regulations, so goods wouldn't need to be checked when they cross that border, but that would have made the whole Brexit project a bit pointless or to diverge from EU regulations as much as it wanted to and find another way to check cross-border goods. Yeah, so the British government discarded the first option of close alignment because, yeah, it would just have made a lot of the original promises of Brexit uh, impossible. And they went for a hard Brexit, which allowed them to diverge from alignment with the EU, uh, but it left the border question unresolved. Okay, so so now then, goods travelling between the UK and Ireland have to be checked. But the question is where? Uh, for ages, the Conservative government claimed that it had some kind of like secret solution to this whole problem. Um, and they wouldn't tell anyone. Um, but nobody could figure out what that 
possibly could have been. Uh, so the EU at that point proposed that just in case, just in case the UK's secret solution to the border question did not in fact exist, um, that there should be a plan B ready to go. And that plan B was the infamous backstop. So in a backstop scenario, Northern Ireland would have remained in line with EU regulations, taking away the need for a border on the island of Ireland. Instead, goods travelling from Britain to Ireland and vice versa would be checked at British ports before crossing the Irish Sea. So that's what people mean when they're talking about a border down the Irish Sea, because that's where the checks would be. Now, remember that the backstop solution was only supposed to be an insurance policy. You know, the British government had already claimed that it had a solution to this, an alternative solution. So theoretically, if what they were saying was true, the backstop would never have come into force. But nonetheless, all hell absolutely broke loose in Westminster about that backstop. Yeah, so the backstop became kind of notorious and demonised. Uh, it was really attacked. It was very politicised. Unionists denounced it uh, because, you know, in their eyes, it undermined the union. Uh, Boris Johnson, who unseated Theresa May as prime minister, he also denounced it. And he decided this was key to his rise to power, that he was going to get like a whole new deal to get rid of this hated backstop and get all of the impossible promises of Brexit all at once. And he did, but he didn't do it in the way that he led many people to believe. So instead of a backstop solution where a border down the Irish Sea would only kick in as an insurance policy, so it was just like, just in case there wasn't another way, Johnson's deal made it absolutely definite that there would be a sea border. So it's like a front stop rather than a backstop. It's a <laughs> default situation. Right. So essentially what he did in that deal was he took solutions contained in the backstop and like repackaged them as his own brilliant new solution to the border question. And um, he, you know, he kind of could do that because at that point, everyone was just so confused, <laughs> you know, like even, you know, politicians around him were just so confused about what was going on that he was quite successfully able to sell that deal as like a great triumph over the EU imposed backstop. And really, I think only people in Ireland seemed to notice on a huge scale that he was using the backstop in it mostly. So under this new deal, much like the backstop, um, Northern Ireland would remain in line with the EU and impose its customs norms. Um, and there would, in instead of any checks on the land border, all checks would happen between the island of Britain and the north. Right. And from the EU's perspective, that was a pretty easy deal to make, right? Like they had no huge problem with that because that's like exactly what they had already kind of suggested as a fallback, fallback option anyway, right? Oh, yeah, they had no problem signing up to that. And I think they thought it was a bit weird because he'd kind of negotiated something that, according to the objections that he himself was raising to the backstop, was worse. <laughs> Yeah. You know? yeah. so, um, but anyway, that's what he did. Um, it also included, which is worth noting, a kind of consent mechanism as well, where um, the North could choose whether to ditch this arrangement through votes in the Stormont Assembly. Okay, so Johnson negotiated and signed that deal last year. And that's what we refer, refer to as the withdrawal agreement, which I'm sure you recognise from every single news station every day for the last <laughs> few months. Um, so it was this withdrawal agreement that set out the terms on which Britain left the EU this January. Uh, Johnson passed the bill in the House of Commons, and he pretty much forced all of his fellow Conservatives to back it or face getting kicked out of the party. 
And then he campaigned on the back of that deal. And then he won an election on the back of that deal. And then he was consequently rewarded by the British public with the endorsement of a large majority in Parliament on the back of that deal. And hurrah! You know, like, the border question, it seemed finally to have been solved. Um, The Brexiteers could feel like they were triumphant, which at that point appeared to be what they valued most of all. And everyone could just move on. Or not, Naomi, or not. What happened to, to stimulate this? Okay, so there were some warning signs. So quite early on, Boris Johnson and members of his cabinet started saying odd things that didn't align with what the, they themselves had signed up to. So they mm. started saying that there wouldn't be checks in the Irish Sea, which just didn't make sense because they mm-hmm. that's literally what they'd agreed to. Um, <laughs> so this slightly concerned the EU and Ireland, but they weren't too worried about it because the withdrawal agreement, as well as setting out these, these kinds of arrangements, it also included enforcement mechanisms. So if either side isn't happy that the other one is a abiding by it, they can complain to an arbitration panel that can impose fines and also refer the matter up to the European courts. Um, And both sides had agreed to that. And in addition to that, the EU started saying very, very early on that it needed to see evidence of the implementation of the withdrawal agreement. So literally the building of infrastructure for stuff like animal checks and so on in ports uh, in the north. And this was very, very much tied to the prospect of an agreement on a future trade deal. So they said Mm. the two went hand in hand. We need to trust that you're implementing what we already agreed before we can agree the next thing. Okay, right. So, and and as we've seen, like, again and again, that's the point at which this British government tends to fall down. Like, you know, when they have to turn their rhetoric into something solid or tangible, it generally doesn't go very well for them. Uh, So how did those negotiations go? Basically, very slowly and stupidly. So, like, they hardly, <laughs> they hardly made any progress at all. It was like ritualistically after each round, the EU chief negotiator Michel Barnier comes out and like rails against the fact that there hasn't been any progress and like what's the point and the British haven't put forward any paper or like position or whatever. Um, so what the EU said was that UK negotiators would turn up and just kind of read out an existing position that wasn't that detailed and not negotiate at all. So not say like, oh, how about this? Why don't we kind of take here and give there and so on? There, not No negotiating. Um, and they also kind of wound up the EU because they were using language like all about sovereignty and saying things like you just simply don't understand that we're an independent country. Um, and that kind of implies that France... Ireland, Germany are not independent countries. So it really (laughs) annoys like the EU member states. Anyway, then of course, COVID came, negotiations were cancelled, had to take place over Zoom, which is apparently pretty hard to negotiate over. Right. Yes. As, as we as we can all relate to uh, since <laughs> since the last few months. Um, so, OK, right. So that brings us right up to this summer. And like I said, even though things were going really, really badly, um, most people, including, you know, people involved from the EU and from the UK, they were pretty distracted from all this or relatively so anyway, because of this, you know, small issue of a global pandemic. Mm. But then something extraordinary happened this month that that brought Brexit screaming back onto the table. Like it's like a beast or a baby or something. (laughs) Yeah, so it all sort of kicked off with this explosive scoop in the Financial Times by Peter Foster, which 
um, claimed that the UK was going to introduce a new bill, a new law that would cancel parts of that withdrawal agreement, specifically mm. the bits related to checks between Northern Ireland and Britain. So in other words, even as negotiations to find the next deal were still ongoing, the UK were going to start unpicking the last agreement. Right. So like actually, I mean, like unbelievable, right? So, so this threw everyone into a total panic um, and everyone was trying to find out what exactly the UK were implying by this. I mean, I got the impression from a lot of journalists I know that maybe there had been some kind of misunderstanding, like, because this couldn't possibly be true. Absolutely. And governments as well were thinking, let's see this bill. We want to see this bill before we make any, because it was just so out there, you know. Mm. But within no time at all, to a lot of people's absolute shock, the Secretary of State for Northern Ireland, Brandon Lewis, stood up in Parliament and confirmed it all and said, none other than that, yes, we are actually going to break international law. Like he used those words, we are going to mm. break international law. Because, I mean, that is what it means if you unilaterally go back on an international treaty that's being passed into your own law and EU law. It was just an astounding moment because usually people who, who like countries that break international law don't declare it. You know, they 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 argue to the contrary. They're like, oh, no, of course, we respect uh, respect international law. Like no one openly declares they're going to break it. Let's hear from him. Um, I would say to my um, honourable friend that, yes, this does break international law in a very specific and limited way. We are taking the power to disapply the EU law concept of direct effect required by Article 4 in a certain, very tightly defined circumstance. I mean, what a gobsmacking moment. <laughs> like, really, it's, it's just unbelievable. And like, even now, I think that statement has left a lot of people puzzled, like its motivation. Was this a deliberate move on the part of Brandon Lewis? Or was he blundering there? Was that a gaffe? This is the thing. It wasn't a blunder at all. So journalist colleagues who watched him say those words in Parliament say that he was reading it out from a script. It had been prepared, you know, it was a deliberate and official line. And this was absolutely confirmed in the subsequent days um, when the UK government, you know, doubled down on the whole thing, said they were going to go ahead with it um, and, you know, defended it in the same way that he'd defended it. Right. So how did the EU react when when he said that? So honestly, there was a fair bit of genuine shock and bewilderment um, because for one thing, nobody really understands why they would do that. Like it is... It's so destructive to their reputation. Like they're they're just about to try and negotiate trade deals with countries all over the world and then mm. announcing that they consider it within their own power to go back on these things anytime they want. It's mm. just a crazy thing to do. Um and also like why would they do this at this point of the negotiations? It seemed people were just trying to puzzle it out. Yeah, like, I think it's worth making clear, like, what this means. Like, international law is like this fundamental principle of international relations. You have to keep the agreements that you sign with others, because otherwise your word is just not really worth anything on the international stage, and you won't be able to sign an agreement with anyone. Right, it's kind of underpins, like, the world as we know it. (laughs) 
So mm. like the global <laughs> order as it has developed for hundreds of years is yeah. based on, you know, people's observance of international treaties. So stuff like the fact that Britain is still in charge of Gibraltar, like that's that's from a treaty that was agreed in the 1700s that Spain doesn't like one bit. But, you know, the whole idea of like modern civilization is that mm. you know you, it was negotiated and agreed so that's they're kind of stuck with it and they can only change that if the other side agrees as well mm. so it's nuts anyway and it's 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 really serious like the, the the eu basically they reacted kind of calmly they were like okay we're just gonna keep uh negotiating we're not gonna react <laughs> dramatically but do you want to think do you want to consider not doing that do you want to consider Maybe take take it until the end of the month and think about not <laughs> yeah. going ahead with that bill. Sleep on it. Yeah. <laughs> so they gave them until the end of September, which we're pretty much recording now at the end of September. And Britain hasn't. Oh. They've just been like, no, we're going ahead with it. And also, like, the myopia of Westminster is incredible. Like, Westminster, again, just negotiated with itself over this bill with this amendment where it's like, oh, we'll put a parliamentary lock on it. So the parliament has to approve the breaking of international law. And, you know, won't that reassure our allies? And it's like, no, guys, no one cares about the British parliament, which has a, a huge conservative majority and like put placing its trust in it. No one like just get rid of the bill, get rid of those parts of the bill or or nothing else will make a difference, basically. Mm, right. Yeah. Yeah. That that was very clear, actually. Yeah. The um the there is a kind of sense that they're talking to themselves in, in all this. Yeah. Like this could somehow be resolved internally. Um. But As like always. the yeah. Right. Well, it's a tendency, definitely. Yeah. And it I, I, and it is actually. I noticed that it's um it's promulgated by the media. Like the media doesn't you know seem to get out of the bubble either very often. You know, even the, even the good media in, in Tim. In the UK. Seriously, like there is a lack of understanding about it. Like because when this amendment went in that we've been talking about was put forward by this guy called Bob Neal. Mm. I had British radio stations calling me, more than one, two. I won't mm. name them. And they were sort of like breathless on the phone to me, like, Naomi, can you tell us about the Brussels reaction to the Bob Neal amendment? And I was like, there is no Brussels reaction to the Bob Neal amendment. No one knows who the fuck Bob Neal is. Like, does it take... <laughs> Are they going ahead with the bill or not? Because like some amendment by like some conservative guy, it doesn't make any difference, you know? So like, yeah, when it comes down to the motivation of it then, um, like presuming, I mean, I suppose like when we assume we make an ass out of you and me, but um, <laughs> presuming that this UK government have some sense of what on earth that they're doing, um, it looks like there are two possibilities here of what they're playing at. So either they think that this is going to be a successful tactic to like, force the EU to give them what they want, or they don't actually care that much about getting a deal with the EU. Maybe they're actually trying not to get a deal with the EU and have the blame put onto the EU. So, so which is it? Yeah, this is, this is like the million dollar question that everyone's trying to figure out. Like, is there some sort of cunning plan behind the whole mm. thing? Or is it kind of blundering and, you know, it, it's a lot more stupid than we kind mm. of assume? Um, so yeah, is it a negotiating ploy? Is it sort of some deliberate, um, deliberate act to try and, and get a concession or do they genuinely want to destroy the prospect of actually reaching a deal? Because really this, this, this could do that, you know, it, it, it is, it destroys faith. Like the negotiators have no 
basis anymore to negotiate on if mm. they don't stick to the previous agreement like why would they agree to another one if they're actually in the process tearing up the last one mm. um so yeah they're just keeping calm and not overreacting in case this was a deliberate provocation by Britain to try and get the EU side to basically storm out dramatically and then it would all be the EU's fault, you know, that it all sort of collapsed. Um, mm. But basically what's happened is the EU hasn't done that. They're going to keep negotiating. Um, and ultimately it's actually just hardened the EU's position and made it more likely that the EU is just going to keep insisting on things that Britain doesn't like. So Britain was always asking, you know, can't this agreement be a little bit more loose? You know, you can mm. trust us. Like we're not Saudi Arabia. Like we we're very close to you in our in our norms, and we're not going to go crazy. You know, but we don't. We just give us a bit of freedom and and let us sell into the single market at the same time. And you know, it'll all be grand, like a wink and a nod, kind of trust mm. us. Well, that's totally gone out the window because he was like. Oh, we can't trust you on anything now. Right. Yeah. Right. To say the least. <laughs> yeah. So I spoke to the Irish Foreign Minister Simon Coveney earlier this week when he was in Brussels um, about what his sense of the mood was. Basically, he said that he's trying to convince other EU leaders that Britain does want a deal, even though they're going a very weird way about it. What has been concerning uh, over the last couple of days for me from speaking to to other EU foreign ministers is that there's a growing sense that perhaps the UK doesn't want to deal um, and that this is more about uh, managing the blame game uh, as the negotiations fail. Uh, and I have reassured them very uh, clearly that in my view that is not the case. Uh, I believe the Prime Minister and the British government do want to deal, um, even though they are behaving uh, in a strange way to get that done in terms of the legislation coming through uh, Westminster at the moment. So, as I understand it then, there are realistically really just a few weeks left to reach a deal. Uh, so what on earth, what can happen now? Everyone is expecting it to be a roller coaster few weeks. So, mm. uh, like, yeah, they just got it. They, it's weeks now. That's all the time there is left to get this agreement and actually enact it. And then, like, what happens? What happens if they don't succeed and if there isn't a deal? That seems like an incredibly likely scenario now. Right. So it will be that no deal scenario that we've talked about before. A sudden economic mm. jolt to the UK and its nearest neighbours. Huge disruption to stuff like the movement of tr trucks in and out of Britain. Therefore, probably to supplies of things. Um, sudden significant tariffs on loads of goods uh, that can cause companies to go bust pretty much right away. And particularly mm. like stuff like food farming and drink companies in Ireland that rely on exports to Britain and a, ho a huge host of other uncertainties around everything from like driving licenses being recognised to passenger rights in air travel. Yeah, right. And, and like you said, um, Naomi, we have discussed that at more length in previous Brexit updates and previous episodes that touch on this. Um, but it's worth, you know, kind of uh, like hammering home again. Like what about the border? Well, that's the thing that's new. That's the thing that's new. Right. So this no deal thing has been sort of hanging over us for ages. But now we have the prospect of a no deal plus Britain potentially not respecting the withdrawal agreement. So that's like mm. even more rogue, even more unpredictable than ever before. 
So, like, right. according to the withdrawal agreement, the border shouldn't be an issue. Like, every, all sides yeah. signed up that it would legally be in the Irish Sea, uh, like, just in terms of the checks that needed to happen. It says nothing, you know, of course, Northern Ireland remains in the UK. It's got no bearing on that. But if Britain, you know, isn't going to enforce that or respect it, um, there's this possibility that, you know, the EU has limited options you know, then maybe the Brit- mm. Britain wouldn't even, you know, pay any attention to any ultimate ruling by European courts saying, oh, well, you have to enforce it. Britain could be like, no. Uh, and right. if if Britain is absolutely determined to go down that path, ultimately, there's really, really little that Ireland can do. Like, there's really little. And it will be forced into this awful dilemma in which, you know, checks should go on the border across the island. And mm. with all of the disastrous consequences that that would have. Right. Yeah. And like, we don't need to remind you of the consequences because, like I said at the beginning of the episode, we have been charting them out for four <laughs> years yeah. and they are from A to Z. Like there are just so many different fallouts uh, from from that um, from that land border. Like, I mean, I, I do think that there is a kind of misconception on the other side of the Irish Sea that this is just a question of putting up a wall and that people will get hang- angry at the wall and that they will shoot each other, you know, because I don't know, like because they are um, inherently unreasonable people people in Ireland like there's a sense of that like why don't you just not kill each other you know like I've heard that more than once um on social media and it's a pity because like it there's it's very hard to describe to people in a in a sentence or in even in a short article just how many um like knock-on effects this this might have um on the island of Ireland like intimate and nuanced and long-lasting and terrible terrible effects it's just people's um, everyday yeah. lives are based around yeah. traveling across that border back and forth and it's just yeah. incredibly important that you know you can live your life without ever knowing that it exists like everyone else's daily life, you know, like what what your daily life, as you know, now is worth everything to people, you know, like, and it's just very rare that a lot of people have that threatened to be taken away from them. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it's, um, it's really important aspect, actually, of all this to make clear, you know, uh, what would bring that border into place because it's one thing that actually has really annoyed me some of this uh, manipulative rhetoric coming out of the Conservative Party and some of the right-wing media uh, which is one thing that often comes out with uh, this line that well well we're not going to put up a border on the island of Ireland so if anyone puts up a border it will be Ireland or the EU you know this line has been kind of rehashed again and again while the whole time as you just explained like these dogged and kind of unthinking actions might actually force that border indirectly into place, like despite everything the EU has done to avoid that. That, that. that is the thing. So, you know, the UK's decision to do a Brexit and not only do a Brexit, but like a hard one and mm. not accept all of these solutions that have been put before it, that would be the cause of this border. But, you know, if the UK is just going to go rogue and they're not going to do anything and they don't care about the consequences that there would be from the World Trade Organization and stuff if they didn't manage borders properly, you know, in theory, they could just refuse to put any border infrastructure up. But nevertheless, a border would would happen. You know, it would it would Mm. it would force Ireland and the EU to be the one to confront the problem. Do you know what I mean? And again, you would have mm. this horrible dilemma in Dublin where, you know, they're they're almost not like they're almost never going to put up a border. But then if they don't somehow check goods, it's like the Republic actually 
being taken out of the single market against its will by Britain, you know? And then mm. this is like, it's like choosing, oh, like, do you, do you want to have your right leg cut off or your left, you know? Like, it's, it's the, those two things are absolutely fundamental to Ireland. Um, like, both would be an absolute disaster and it would just be this horrendous situation. Yeah, right. Now, and as while we're on the subject of manipulative and uh, manipulative and obfuscating uh, language, uh, you know, I want to uh, uh, address something else because this has absolutely been making it into the media um, as well in the UK, and that's the idea that, like, um, you know, this breach of international law was being done to protect the Good Friday uh, Agreement, um, you know, and. First of all, the very existence of Brexit, of course, like called the Good Friday Agreement into question because the promises of the Brexit campaign were pretty much impossible to implement without somehow affecting the borders of the UK, which would in turn affect the Good Friday Agreement. Um, And at the end of the day, all this drama about the backstop and the border in the Irish Sea and all that were all about saving the Good Friday Agreement and the peace on the island of of Ireland. Uh, But in recent weeks, Conservative and DUP politicians um, have been claiming that the UK, you know, had to do this, had to go to all these uh, illegal lengths to protect the GFA, um, which is astounding. Like, firstly, because the DUP, of all people, were one of the only parties who opposed the existence of the Good Friday Agreement in the first place. So them suddenly talking about protecting it, you know, definitely comes across as a bit rich. It's not very credible. Yeah. Indeed. Yeah. Uh, secondly, the Good Friday Agreement is in itself an international agreement. And by declaring that Britain, you know, can't be trusted to uphold international agreements, the government is is by proxy undermining the foundations of the Good Friday Agreement. And thirdly, of course, if the UK refuses to enforce border checks in the Irish Sea, like you say, they would be willfully throwing the peace and stability of the border region into total disarray. Yeah, right. And if the UK needs to make some sort of adjustment to the Good Friday Agreement, it needs to do it with Ireland. It's not something that can be unilaterally changed. That's the whole point of it. Mm. It's it's a it's a treaty between like different parties. Um mm. so that kind of Alice in Wonderland, Mad Hatter, <laughs> topsy turvy rhetoric is absolutely characteristic of the communication strategy of the British side certainly for the past year they mm. seek to to ar- to argue first the arguments they know will be u- used against them so if mm. if they know they're going to be accused of uh, risking the good friday agreement they'll quickly argue that they're protecting they're doing this to protect the good friday agreement and you see it again and again on on different matters um like if they know that the if they reckon that the EU side is going to argue that they're not negotiating in good faith or they haven't put forward proposals, they'll rush to be the first ones to come out and say to the media, the EU isn't negotiating in good faith and hasn't put forward sufficient proposals. Like This is mm. absolutely cl- classic sort of um, tactic, which is is done to sort of undermine the force of the arguments that, that you know are going to be used against you. I think that kind of rhetoric as well about protecting the Good Friday Agreement, which is I mean, it's just so has so little credibility in Ireland. Like mm. it is seen as so cynical and self-evidently ridiculous, given mm. that all of the actions have been that have put any any threat to the peace in place have been initiated by Britain, you know, since 2016. And all of these things are like solutions trying to accommodate their choice and while preserving the peace, you know. Um, so it has no credibility but 
it can kind of somehow pass unchallenged in the London bubble because the rhetoric, the kind of Overton window has moved really outside the norm. Like it's moved off to a kind of crazy place there where you can you can make claims like this is to protect the Good Friday Agreement and that's a, that's like a normal thing to say. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. When it's it's really abnormal, like the, the, the sort of foundations of the debate have really gone over to like extreme sort of ha- hardcore Brexitism. And uh, like even, you know, you also get claims like that the EU is a sort of evil empire and stuff like that, that and, and that the UK is is breaking away like a country breaking away and claiming its independence from a colonizer which mm. is it's just so insulting like those kind of claims are made all the time and not particularly challenged in British media but you know the Britain voluntarily was a member of the EU and co-built it with the other member states consensually like this that that is so it is so wrong to compare that to to, to colonization, to invasion mm. by an imperial power. And for that argument to be made by British politicians in particular, it's just so egregious. But, you know, <laughs> if the bubble discourse in Westminster has just gone down a weird path. And mm. I think possibly part of the reason for that is this unfortunate scenario where you have a way over-representation of the DUP um, in in Parliament. So, of course, the Sinn Féin MPs don't take their seats. They're abstentionists because they don't recognise the jurisdiction of the London Parliament over the North. And, you know, that's understandable. And they also get elected on that platform year in, year mm. out. Um, so this isn't to sort of to quarrel with that or whatever, you know, but it's just to say that a kind of a consequence of that is that no one is making the argument um that would be recognized as normal by mm. at least like half let's say half of the population in Northern Ireland so you know the claims about the Good Friday Agreement and so on that it's, it's to protect the Good Friday Agreement they they go much less challenged than they should be they seem much more normal than they should be because there's only like two SDLP MPs who are representing you know the whole bulk of the population in the north which isn't DUP voters you know um, yeah, and just uh, trying to like um, present the other side of of the coin yeah it does have a huge effect um, I was watching as I'm sure um, you were and, and a lot of people I was watching uh, Ed Miliband really slam Boris Johnson in the House of Commons um, a few weeks ago yeah uh, with so a, unexpected yeah, he he really went for him. Um, Where was he quite, hiding quite, that all these years, Miliband? Very impressive, and, and that that great mop of hair. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but um, <laughs> um, but it really came across there when you had uh, Scottish politicians and Welsh politicians standing up, um, that the DUP were the only voice that was coming, you know, out for Northern Ireland, and it was skewed. You know, it was it was misrepresentative in such a in such a big way. And even though people in Northern Ireland understand that, and people in Ireland understand that, you could kind of see the people in the House of Commons didn't fully understand that. Yeah, yeah um, you so, can totally get a, a a skewed impression about what the actual views. are are in the north when all you're hearing sure. is like Sammy Wilson you know <laughs> being yeah. like we in the north we in, or we in northern Ireland we in northern Ireland you know um and yeah, yeah it, it you're not hearing you know 
the other elected representatives. Yeah, and especially in this issue where it just it came across to me anyway that this voice was a turkey voting for Christmas, you know, like it seemed to be so extremely not in the interest of Northern Ireland, you know, um, well, certainly from my perspective. Um, anyway, so right, let's let's get to um, what's going to happen. So what hope do we have that this will be resolved? Okay, so it's one of these things where it's like impossible to call, right? But... I keep saying this, I mean, I've said it before that I do think No Deal is sort of underrated as a possibility. Mm. And it's this British government in particular seems to have no problem with doing it. So it's, it is very hard to see how a deal could be done. However, at this moment, it is not just the EU that's telling the UK, you know, you need to abide by this international treaty, the withdrawal agreement, or we're not going to have any normal trade relations. And the consequences mm. of that is economic misery in Britain. It's also the United States now saying that as well. So remember, uh. trade trade deals have to be approved in the US Congress. That's in the hands of the Democratic Party at the moment. And it, even in normal times, it's very fussy about trade deals. And it's also home to a powerful lobby of politicians, not just Democrats, but Republicans as well, who are very supportive of Ireland and particularly the Good Friday Peace Agreement, which remember the US had impor an important role in brokering. And that's why, as you might have noticed, all of a sudden the airwaves filled up with these Americans like warning about risks to the Good Friday Agreement and saying that Britain could never get a trade deal if it tore up the withdrawal agreement. Right. Yeah. And, you know, this is something that um, the playwright uh, Bonnie Greer actually warned the British public about. <laughs> you, um, uh, I think it was last year. Um, I think I may have been on Question Time. I might be wrong about that, but it was on a it was on a British Current Affairs show, um, uh, kind of war warning people that the US was not going to get on board with this. And she put it very eloquently. So it might be worth listening to uh, a clip of her. Oftentimes, I hear people talking about Ireland as if this country owns Ireland. Ireland own owes this country nothing. Uh, Ireland owes this country no concessions. It owes it no quarter. It owes it nothing. The third thing that um, the third thing that I would add too is that the Good Friday Agreement, in spite of its rather benign uh, name, the Good Friday Agreement is a truce, and it's a truce because the United States of America and the EU sat down with this country to make it happen. We have to be much more serious about this. And the third thing I want to say is that the United States is Irish. And if anybody thinks that they're going to get a deal through and have a relationship, a trade relationship with the United States Absolutely. that shafts Ireland, you got another thing coming. It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. I'm from, I'm from Chicago. Uh, that's where I was born. And you know what we do on St. Patrick's Day? We dye the river green. People are very serious about Ireland and the United States. Don't mess with it. Don't make it look bad. And then lo and behold, you know, just uh, what this month, here's Nancy Pelosi, who is a Speaker of the House in the United States and a very powerful player when it comes to these issues. And this is what she had to say when she heard about what was going on with the antics in the British government. Good Friday Accords were a very high priority for us, Democrats, and Republicans, House and Senate, so that if the UK did anything to undermine the Good Friday Accords, 
they should not even think about having a U.S.-U.K. bilateral trade agreement. The British and the Irish worked together. They came to terms. It was part of the international treaty uh, going forward with the departure of the Brits from the EU. And then this news comes to us practically in the middle of the night that the U.K. had decided uh, to undermine the Good Friday Accords. What were they thinking? Whatever it is, I hope they're not thinking of a UK-US bilateral trade agreement to make up for what they might lose in losing the... It's up to the people of the UK for them to decide if they want to belong to the EU and the rest. That's their judgment. That's their decision. That's to be respected. But don't think you're going to get a reward if you undermine and here's a clip that I actually must have listened to like 15 times because I just find it <laughs> so hilarious. This is Congressman Brendan Boyle on Channel 4 absolutely taking the British government to school. We felt very strongly about making sure that in the Brexit process, UK did nothing to violate the Good Friday Accord. So if that does happen, which would be truly tragic, Right. Um, there will be no U.S.-U.K. free trade agreement, but, period. Right, okay, but there is nothing in this bill that explicitly violates the Good Friday Agreement. In fact, the government is saying it has put these provisions into the bill precisely because it wants to defend the Good Friday Agreement. I, I, I give them credit for saying that with a straight face. That is a, a real achievement. Absolutely no one believes that. That is sheer nonsense. You know, the issue at stake here goes beyond taxes and tariffs. It is preserving a fairly fragile peace, which has held for the last two decades. I don't know why in the world anyone in the right mind would want to bring back this issue. Uh, it is truly staggering. But if you talk to people in Northern Ireland, it is quite difficult to find people there, the people who actually live there, who think that whatever happens with this trade deal, that hostilities could be resumed. I mean, they just think that that is very, very outlandish and unlikely to happen. Really? I, I, I'm, I would be struck to exactly who you're speaking to in Northern Ireland, uh, a place, by the way, today that has more, quote unquote, peace walls than it did two decades ago. Actually, most people I speak to on both sides of, of the divide there are quite concerned about anything that would happen that would be destabilizing to the current status quo. And just explain to us how you think that this latest bill can de actually destabilize the Good Friday Agreement. If you uh, end up in a situation in which there need to be checks on the border between a member state of the European Union, which the Republic of Ireland is, and the six counties of Northern Ireland, which is part of the UK, would now be leaving or have left the EU, if you need to create checks there, and a certain infrastructure to support that, that can have a destabilizing effect. We saw it before in the middle part of the 20th century when those border checks were erected in the first place. Now, as it happens, Congressman Boyle is actually an occasional listener to this very podcast. Aha, amazing. Right. <laughs> hello, hello, Congressman Boyle, and a big <laughs> shout out to all the Boyles if you, if you are listening right now. 
I recently caught up with the congressman and asked him about his family story, his connections to Ireland, and why is this issue about the Good Friday Agreement and Brexit and so on so important to him and to others in Congress? Let's hear from that now. I think you have quite an interesting family history, right? Your your dad's from Donegal, if, if I'm correct. Can you tell yeah. me a little bit about about that story? So my father is uh, is born and raised in Blencolum Kill, which is in the Gaeltacht in southwest Donegal. And so that's where all uh, my, my family and my dad's side come from. And uh, he, he left for America when he was 19, so exactly 50 years ago in, in 1970. And then on my mom's side, she's American born, um, but both of her parents had just come to the United States not, not long before she was born. And they came from County Sligo, a small, beautiful town called Eastkey. So um, as a result, I have a, a ton of family and cousins in the Donegal, Sligo, Mayo um, area and uh, keep you know, in very frequent contact with them. And so would you have come back to Ireland more since this topic came up of the border and Brexit and the Good Friday Agreement and everything like this that you've been so involved in? Well, as a kid, I mean, I would always come just to visit, to visit family. Um, but then, you know, since being elected to Congress in, in 2014, um, I've been to Ireland, I think, three times. Uh, it seems like it's pretty much every other year. Um, I was part of the congressional delegation that we went over last year with Speaker Pelosi and a few of my colleagues to meet with British officials in London, to meet with Irish officials in, in Dublin, um, to go to the North. Uh, and it was specifically on the Brexit issue and protecting the, the Good Friday Agreement. Um, so I, I've been you know, a frequent uh, visitor, both in kind of a personal capacity, but then also in a, a more uh, official capacity. And of course, um, you're not the only congressman in the family. Your brother was also elected, if I'm not wrong as well. Yeah, not to Congress, but my brother, uh, Kevin, is a state representative. So he's a state legislator in Pennsylvania. Uh, I was elected first as a state legislator in 2008. And then he joined me in the state legislature, was elected two years later in 2010. So we were able to serve together for four years, which was great. Um, and then in 2014, I won in a pretty big upset, um, actually defeated a former congresswoman who's Chelsea Clinton's mother-in-law. And uh, that was in, in 2014. So I've served in Congress for the last six years. Your parents must be very proud. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, you know, um, it's funny because they were extremely nervous when I first went down the political path. They rather liked that I had a quote unquote, nice normal job as I, as I think my mom put it, and you know, the idea that, because they're both, my mom unfortunately has, has since passed away, but she was, and my dad is, uh, you know, very humble person, not looking for any sort of attention. So the idea that one, let alone both of their children would be running for office and all that entails um, was very foreign to them. And they were very uh, nervous, apprehensive about it. But then eventually, you know, they, they really uh, got into it. And, uh, you know, the great thing about both of them is, is they really would be proud no matter what we were doing. Um, so, 
a lot of people have may have seen you on their screens lately sort of uh, warning that Congress wouldn't pass a trade deal if there was any sort of risk um, to the Good Friday Agreement. And I can't tell you how many conversations I've had in Brussels and, you know, with people in Dublin, who with people who've just been marvelling at how, you know, figures in Washington really uh, came out in force on this issue just lately. What's behind that? I mean, why why has there been so much support for Ireland? Is this the legacy of all of those St. Patrick's Day visits? <laughs> um, well, for me, it's uh, it's a labor of love. Uh, I'm glad that that had the effect and the impact that we wanted. Um, but for me, it's it's really I just personally feel very strongly uh, about this. Obviously, given um, who I am, my family, that's where where it comes from. Um, but then also, I think it is important for the United States, and I certainly attempt to make this argument to others, it's important for the United States, even if you have no Irish heritage whatsoever. Um, when you look at any sort of peace process that this country has been involved in in my lifetime, there haven't been very many that you can say were um, very successful unfortunately. And, and this is clearly one of them in terms of the Good Friday Agreement. Would not have happened had President Clinton um, reversed what then had been the, the U.S. position, which was essentially to defer to the British. He made a bold move in getting involved and then appointing George Mitchell as a special envoy. A lot of people took risks in order to sign up to that. It's a, a major, yes, achievement of Dublin, achievement of London, most of all achievement of the people who, who live in Northern Ireland, but it's also a, an American achievement as well. And so um, I think that, that there are others who might not have Irish ancestry who still feel very, very strongly about it and making sure that we live up to our obligations as a guarantor of the Good Friday Agreement. So how did it go down in Washington when a British minister said in the House of Commons that the government was going to break international law and reverse aspects of the withdrawal agreement that was signed last year. Was there shock? Even before that, there was real shock, myself included. Um, I assumed that, well, I knew and always keep an eye on um, what is going on in the negotiations between the UK and the EU in terms of what the trade relationship will look like. I thought the withdrawal agreement was completely settled. After all, Boris Johnson not only negotiated and signed it, he went about winning by a pretty big margin a um, domestic election based on, quote unquote, getting Brexit done. Uh, and so for that government less than a year later to turn around and all of a sudden say it was actually a, an awful deal, that is something that I didn't anticipate um, and certainly no one else did here. I think as, as other colleagues of mine became aware of what the British were attempting to do, it, it certainly led to a real sense of shock. Um, and it, re, it motivated a lot of us to redouble our efforts. And just in terms of what the consequences are, um, what is the leverage that Congress has over any future trade deal um, between oh, the US and the UK? Yeah, I, I think probably sometimes people who are only familiar with the parliamentary system might not quite understand, you know, how um, powerful Congress is, 
especially when it comes to, to trade deals. Any trade agreement has to be ratified by Congress. In 2015, 2016, President Obama signed what was called the TPP. It was a trade agreement with countries um, in the Pacific Rim and a, Democrats in Congress would not approve the TPP, even though this was negotiated by Barack Obama. Um, so uh, Congress has a, a very strong say, a co-equal say, and we've made clear that if there is any breach of the Good Friday Agreement, if there's any even talk of reestablishing a, a border on the island of Ireland, that we will not in any way entertain a, a US-UK trade agreement. We're facing into this situation now where there's only a few weeks remaining um, to try and figure out a deal. And certainly in Dublin and Brussels, I think a lot of politicians I'm speaking to are, are asking, well, what are the actual options left? Because in the end, they can't actually stop the British government from causing a no deal if they want to, um, with all the consequences that they that they have. So. Do you think political pressure, this kind of political pressure, will do it? I don't know. I'm not sure if I would be the best person to to answer that. I, I still think that um, considering the fact that, what, almost five years or at least four and a half years of negotiations have taken place and that so much time and energy has been invested by so many people, I have to think that that's a sign that in the end, both sides want an agreement. And I continue to hope slash believe that as cynical as it is, that this is just a, a ploy by Boris Johnson and the UK government to gain as much leverage as possible in terms of what the, the trade relationship looks like. Um, I, you know, when you think of what it was like in the 70s and 80s. When you think of the sort of economic damage that would be inflicted on the UK, especially by a no deal, I have to think that in the end, cooler heads will prevail and they won't go down this path of mutually assured destruction. I think I asked everything I want to do, unless there's a point you particularly like to add, in which case, um, yeah, go for it. <laughs> no, I, I think that I think that's pretty much it. Although I think I am the only member of Congress who, who follows GAA football. So oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> I, have, uh, I have a Donegal football jersey, a Sligo football jersey, and yes, even a Mayo uh, football jersey. Um, my my poor cousins have even been there on numerous occasions when Mayo has lost all Ireland final after all Ireland final. So. Um, you know, I, I continue to be uh, very, you know, very engaged um, when it comes to Ireland, not just on the on the political matters. And um, do you do you know of any good pubs around Washington that screen the GAA matches? Um, you know, because it's on because most of the games are on the weekend. Typically, um, I'm home, and I bought my father the art the art the GAA package. And uh, so I went over to his house and, and set it up on his TV. So typically, my brother and I will, will get together with my dad and, you know, watch it if it's down to the, the final four or, or the final. I think it's, it's, it's such an exciting sport. Um, I, both of the, the Gaelic sports, I, I think, are just two of the, the most exciting sports to watch. 
Wow, so interesting to hear. Uh, thank you uh, to Congressman Boyle for those insights. Uh, so, Naomi, I'm getting the general kind of impression that the international reaction to the UK's latest antics is mostly bafflement um, and confusion about how this government could be so, well, what appears to be incompetent and reckless. Like, am I right in that? Certainly when it comes to the charm offensive to Washington, people have just mm. marveled at how the UK managed to miscalculate this so badly. Like, how did they not see this coming? Like you said, you know, they've been warned so many times, not least by Bonnie Greer. Um, so like all this backlash from Washington came just as the UK Foreign Secretary Dominic Raab went on a charm offensive over to Washington and he just got absolutely bodied. There was this <laughs> continuous drip feed of statements of solidarity with Ireland from US politicians and it all culminated in this tweet from none other than Joe Biden, the man who could well be president after election, the election in November. Right. So like, listen to this. This was written by Joe Biden on Twitter on the 16th of September. He writes, we can't allow the Good Friday Agreement that brought peace to Northern Ireland to become a casualty of Brexit. Any trade deal between the US and the UK must be contingent upon respect for the agreement and preventing the return of a hard border, period. He writes out the word, period. (laughs) (laughs) So people were actually roaring with laughter at that tweet and the timing of it. Like this was when Rab was over in Washington, like trying to, I don't know, like get support for whatever they were doing. And it was just like so disastrous for them like they just mm. got destroyed right yeah i mean like this is this is just <laughs> so not a good luck for the conservatives right now like it must really hurt actually like the whole force of of brexit rhetoric until now was that brexiteers were you know they were actually doing everything right they were kind of leading the good fight but like mean old eu was ruining everything for them by like forcing these difficult issues like the Irish border, you know, like that weren't really that important, but like the EU was insisting on them. Um, But now you have this like entirely different superpower that's just like, like shitting all over them. like you know, (laughs) And basically just saying like the, hey guys, this project is unworkable and we won't sign up to it. Like, I mean, it's like, we're really hitting a moment, I think here. um, And very, very, very late on in this process where the Tories are just finally running out of words to distract everyone. And the realities of Brexit are being laid like brutally bare. Like I know that that has been said at at various points throughout this process, but now with a few weeks to go, really, there's kind of nowhere to run um, anymore. I know Tim, I know Tim, but that's not true inside Britain. Like outside Britain, that's absolutely true. But inside, Mm. Prime Minister Boris Johnson has pretty high approval ratings. He's got a big majority in Parliament. And they still, at least the government seems to think it can do and sell pretty much whatever it wants to a domestic Mm. audience. There is almost no domestic political pressure on this. Look at what even the Labour Party is not even like going hard on this. Like, where where is the opposition? It's just not there. Like, you know, everything we're saying is true outside the UK. But inside, it's it's a different world. Yeah, absolutely. That's a good point. Um, and the next few weeks are going to be really, really important back in back in planet Earth. Um, so <laughs> what's what's going to happen next? What's what's the next step? So as we record, the next round of Brexit talks is about to re- kick off here in Brussels. Um, it's the last one that's been scheduled. If they think that they can make progress, they might schedule more. But yeah, there's mm. like hardly, hardly any time. So 
I don't know. We'll have to see. Um, no one knows what will happen. Could be decisive. And the other wild card is that these kind of meetings keep continuously getting cancelled because people test positive with COVID and have to oh, quarantine. God. Like it's hap- it happened last week. The European Council of all the national leaders were just like postponed at the last minute. And like not a day goes by then I don't hear of someone in like these circles who needs now to quarantine because <laughs> because of a COVID case. Anyway, we really don't know, um, but stay tuned. Right, indeed. Um, and yes, uh, as ever, listeners, we will be around when the time comes uh, to break it all down for you. Uh, we hope you were able to digest all of that, all of that information. Um, and if you if you were, and if you want even more Irish Passport content, uh, you can check us out over on Patreon at www.patreon.com forward slash the Irish Passport, where you can get loads and loads and loads of exclusive extra content from the podcast. Um, if you don't want to join us on Patreon, but are feeling generous, uh, you can like and share the podcast on whatever uh, podcast provider that you use, or you can leave us a nice review. We love a nice review, of course, as always. Uh, so that's a slawn from me and until next time here is a nice topical song by the sketch comedian Michael Fry to play us out sanitize your hands before leaving the house put a mask on your face to cover your nose and mouth social distance as best as you can that's two meters between yourself and another man all those things they tell us to clean prevent a repeat of the damage we've seen we hold out hope for a working vaccine but for now just beware of covid 19 for now just beware of covid 19 and all the lives we'll save by keeping up the fight the germs arrive so keep them off your hands, your hands. Sanitize, 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 san